Live from Chicago, this is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Democrat Michael Bauer, Democrat Alexandra Eidenberg, Independent Brent Hamachuk, and conservative nationalist Jennifer Evans. Our program tonight coming to you from our home base at the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago, where our toll-free lines are open at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289. If you'd like to tweet me a comment, it's at Dumo, at D-U-M-O. Of course, you can also go to our website, beyondthebeltway.com, and see not only tonight's broadcast, but any previous broadcast. And also, we are live on the Internet uh, on Facebook with Bruce Dumont, the Beyond the Beltway with Bruce Dumont Facebook page, as well as YouTube around the world. And also, uh, that's if you can't find us there, you're not looking. So again, it's great to have you with us. And uh, let me begin by uh, saying that one of the things we're going to talk about, uh, we talked about it last week at the beginning of the show because it continues to be a big story for a lot of people, and that's Joe Biden. So I want to go right around the table. I'm going to start with our Democrats. Um, the, the problems that Joe Biden is having right now, insofar as women coming forward and saying they have been uncomfortable with the way that Joe Biden has handled them uh, over the years. Uh, Michael Bauer, um, is this a big deal for Joe Biden and the Democratic Party? Well, what I think is a big deal is partly the women who are coming forth, but more significantly is Joe Biden's response. Joe Biden's response, especially with these little kids, shows him to be so out of touch with 2019 that it, it magnifies the issue that he is everyone's favorite grandpa and he should just be acting as a grandfather. Alexander Eidenberg, also a Democrat. Nice to have you with us. Excited to be here. You know, in my Facebook feed, I've been seeing a lot of this video replaying of him um, holding and kind of, you know, touching young girls' hair. And I think everyone's reacting to it differently. I think my concern is that I'm always ready for the opposition to try to slander any candidate. I guess I worry that in the world of Bernie progressive politics that it could be our own team pushing each other down. And I really want to avoid that this go-around. Brett uh, Hemachuk also joins us, making his first visit on our broadcast. Nice to have you with us, Brent. Pleasure to be you here. You are an independent, but, but you've got, you're a political animal. It runs through your blood. It does. Uh, what's your take on, on what Biden is going through right now? I think it's interesting what's happened because I think that Joe Biden was, of all the people right now, either running or rumored to be running, he's probably the only one, if he had run the way that it was rumored he would, it was thrown out a couple weeks ago, that he would run as a one-term president. So if he had been able to run as a one-term candidate and say, look, I'm the nation's divided, I'm old, experienced, trusted, uh, I'm going to see you through it, he could win. He's the one guy who could have beaten Donald Trump in the party has turned to destroy him. I don't believe for a minute that these attacks aren't orchestrated. Right. I don't mean that they did not attacks. They're not attacks. Right. They're events. But uh, the idea revelations of how they, of news. <laughs> yes, revelations of news. I don't believe at all that they're random events. Jennifer and Evans, you join us. You are a, a Trumpster from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. 
Um, are you salivating at all the problems that Joe Biden is having? You know, I'm of two minds on this. I think it's unfortunate that he's going through this. Frankly, as creepy as I think he is, I called him Creepy Uncle Joe um, a couple weeks ago on your program. I don't think he had intent to molest anybody. I I thought that um, Nancy Pelosi's comments about how she comes from the long arm club, that she keeps everybody at an arm's distance, it's kind of sad because is this the society we have now where everybody, everything has to be so sterile? Um, But on the other hand, um, and I do think it's politically motivated, um, but on the other hand, um, this is what the Me Too movement has wrought where we have people being accused of things uh, regardless of uh, their intent, regardless of what they've done, their operating procedure has been for decades. Now they are being um, subject to attacks, and I, I find okay. the spectacle to be just really pretty but it sad. Is, but it is consistent, right? I yeah. mean, if the same movement that, that forced uh, you know, uh, ch- changes in the U.S. Senate insofar as uh, uh, Al Franken, I mean, this is a continuation of that movement. It is. I mean, Al Franken got got pushed out because, you know, he did some wrong things. But in the past, those wrong things would not have caused you to lose a U.S. Senate seat. Let me me suggest this. I've always said, and I've always said this to candidates, there was a very different skill set of being an effective elected official than in being an effective candidate. Joe Biden, from my perspective, would be a very effective elected official, would be a very effective president based on his experience and his qualifications. But not based on his last two runs for president of the United States. Well, I was just going to say, but as a candidate, he is terrible, and he's displaying it again in his reaction to these charges against him. Speaking of those reactions, uh, he's trying to say, I'm sorry. He's trying to put it behind him. Uh, He made a a joke the other night at a speech in Washington. Uh, it, It fell flat. Uh, he, uh, that, that put him on the defensive again. And then after that comment, he came out and he spoke to the press one more time. And this is what he said. I'm sorry I didn't understand. I'm not sorry for any of my intentions. I'm not sorry for anything that I have ever done. Okay. It's Uncle Joe. But, but does everybody at this table think that at this moment this is enough to sink his candidacy? Are we ready to say that? I think we're at a really interesting time in the Me Too movement. And I think that the way women and men interacted even a year ago is really different today. And so and I think that men like Joe Biden um, are struggling to find their path there. And I go back to what Michael just said. He's not a great candidate. Whoever coached him prior to that press conference was not well organized. And I think that everyone's watching right now. And if he doesn't get it together, he's not going to be the right candidate. Does this show, however... Does this show a lack of compassion by members of the Me Too movement and the the progressive left? Does it show a lack of compassion for a 76-year-old man? And could that turn off a lot of senior voters who are the most reliable voters out there? I I don't know that rabidness shows compassion, and there's a rabidness to all of this. So the moment that the accusations are made and the stories come out— the, the, this is sort of a mob mentality. We're not supposed to say mob mentality, but it is. We flock to it. People flock to it. Um, and I think it likely is the end of his candidacy in terms of having a chance to win the nomination. Uh, there's a part of me that's grateful for that because I'll go back to where I started. Yeah. If he had run as a one-term candidate, he could have won, and I'm glad now that he probably can't. But it, on a human level, this is tragic what's happening in our nation. Yeah. Peggy, Noon, Peggy Newland uh, last week in a, in a column just said she pleaded with him, don't run because of 
uh, what she described as the decency of the man caught up in uh, in in 21st century you know democratic politics and and just you, you know, I'll, he, I'll, he I'll make a prediction that first of all I think Joe Biden will announce his candidacy I think he's too far down the road not to and the the best day he will have in the polls is the day he announces and he will go south from there now that prediction is from the man who was the chair of the Lori Lightfoot for mayor campaign in the city of Chicago. So wear your accolades well this week. They may not be worth much next week, but right now, a lot of capital. Michael Bauer, 1-800-723-8029 from coast to coast. And border to border, you're listening to Beyond the Beltway. I'm Bruce Dumont, live from Chicago. Hi, I'm April Jewell, a teacher in Ballard County School District in Kentucky. Last year, we received word that our school had been selected to receive a $25,000 grant from the America's Farmers Grow Rural Education Program, sponsored by the Monsanto Fund, a philanthropic arm of Bayer. The grant is designed to help further science, technology, engineering, and math education. We used it to upgrade the technology in our classrooms to enhance health science curriculums and better prepare our students for various career paths. Now through April 1st, farmers can nominate a school district to apply for ten dollars or $25,000 grants aimed at improving STEM education. I would encourage all eligible farmers to nominate today for a chance to make a lasting impact in countless classrooms. The process takes less than five minutes, and farmers can nominate their school district by visiting americasfarmers.com. That's americasfarmers.com. We're coming back. I'm Bruce Dumont. Uh, during the break, we were talking about you know how this how this affects everybody. Though uh, you know whether you're I'm, I, I I tend to be a hugger. You said yeah. you, Michael, you're a hugger. You, at least the three men at the table. I mean, we're sort of huggers. I mean, uh, but uh, but there are female politicians out there that also. I mean, it, it. I think part of it comes from a generation and uh, and and what the intent is. But again, the the Me Too movement. I mean, it goes from um, uh, sexual harassment. Uh, in the workplace to uh, maybe a, a sexual assault. I mean, what goes next? Touching, hugging. I mean, how far does this movement go in your view, Alexandria? So, you know, it, you noted earlier that the Me Too movement was more of a progressive movement, maybe leaning towards the left a bit more. And I found that shocking. So in my organization, we will, we help women and children get involved in legislation. And we've seen women on both sides of the aisle say me too. And I think that, you know, you, we, we've noted before that we've been harassed in different ways. I think the challenging part is uh, that we want men and women to feel safe in spaces. And I know that the men in my world are now treading in a different way. And I think it's changing personalities and how we treat one another. And for me, um, as a demonstrative person, I think that I'm less offended than some women. But no man knows how a woman's going to feel, and now there's fear in a lot of men. But there's also, we've gone from a, a situation where uh, a, an allegation against a man is horrible, uh, even if it's n- not backed up, as in the Brent Kavanaugh case. But now the, the, it then moved into not only do we want women to come forward, we want to automatically believe them when they right. come forward. Right. Which well, the although- next thing is... Then we don't want we don't want harassment. We don't want sexual assault. I mean, that's 
clearly so, you know, flirting. But now, I, now we don't even want a man to hug a woman. So here's the thing. I First of all, I think we do need to stand with victims. That's very important. But I think that as women, it's really critical that we understand what was acceptable 20 years ago, 10 years ago, a year ago is different. And we participated in that. And so I think that, you know, sexual attraction, the way we work with one another, what was allowable, you know, even a year ago is different than today. And so holding somebody accountable for something that you participated in. And I know that in some of these cases, it's not participatory. Uh, but I think that the art of flirting in the workplace has changed. And I am not trying to be crass about it. But I think that women, and this is something that I've had to kind of reconcile, and I'd love to hear how, what you're thinking, how I play into that. And I can always, I think it's important that as women, we look within and we look at the transactions on our side of things as well. You know, I had this argument with a professor, a women's studies professor on Chicago Tonight about six months ago. And her point of view was that women were, they need to be believed. In fact, she flat out stated, women, we must believe women. And I reject that out of hand because to me, that's deifying a gender. I have a problem with that. We have stone cold liars who are men. We have stone cold liars who are women. And so to me, evidence really becomes a critical uh, piece um, here in the equation of deciding who's a victim. So my problem with this whole thing is, is automatically assuming someone is a victim. Having been a victim before, like many women have, naturally I wanted people to believe me. But the, the point is I wasn't entitled. I never felt that I was entitled to have somebody believe me just because I said it. And I think that that's really a part of the big do, difficulty for me. Do you think that women are more uh, inclined and astute in determining the inappropriateness of another woman more than a man might be? Um, possibly. I'm not sure. I mean, I think the dynamics between a, a woman, like a female boss, for example, in the workplace and a, and a male boss um, are just um, entirely different. So I don't know. I'd have to say possibly. I don't, I don't know. I, well, I, I, one of the problems, I think, with the, the Me Too movement is uh, it's susceptible to what every movement susceptible to, and that is being hijacked. So I, recently I was talking to Alexandra, and she said she was on her way to Springfield, and I think she was going to be talking about child pornography. And I said, are you against it or for it? And she said, well, against it, of course, because everybody's against it, and everybody's against men behaving badly with women. So it's not like there's some great debate in our country. But once the movement starts, then it's available to people to use, to take, to weaponize, to use it for political reasons as opposed to using it for reasons to protect women from being treated badly by men, which mm -hmm. we're all in favor of. I mean, we're all in favor of yeah. them not. Yeah, right. Yes, right. here we go. Now, I, well, I, I, think the, I think, Brent, I think you're putting your finger on the problem as I see it. I mean, we know what behavior should be prohibited and is unconscionable. We do. But, but the problem is when we go beyond that core – it's tough to figure out, well, what are the parameters? What, what, is, what is not acceptable behavior? Um, and, and, and let me add, we have a, a criminal justice system where we used to have a presumption of innocence. We no longer have a presumption of innocence. And now we have a presumption of guilt. Right. We, also have, we also have a, uh, we've got a campaign that's coming up. And uh, we live in a social media world where if you've got pictures, I said this almost three weeks ago on this program, there is, there is a vault of video 
on Joe Biden. And the minute he says he's going to run, it's going to come pouring out. Now, right. you know, in the first you know, two weeks, uh, we've already seen quite a bit of it. And so, you know, Michael, you hit on saying important. You said what is acceptable, and I think what is acceptable is different for every woman and man. And, you know, for me, um, when I, I saw some of those pictures of Biden, and as I said earlier, they've been in my Facebook feed over and over again, I I think of my grandfather, I think of my own dad, and when they've given me a hug or touched my hair and how welcomed that was mm-hmm. and how it's being painted as a negative, but in, you know, of course, anytime someone sneaks up to you and touches your hair, you kind of get that flinch that happens. We, you know, in some of these situations, women have come out, these children have come out and said that that was accepted and friendly and that that was a good thing for them. Um, but I just feel that, you know, as a mom, that innate instinct kicks in and you don't want your child to be in an unsafe situation. And that's definitely the way it's being painted right now, um, which I think goes back to where is his candidacy at and does he have a chance? Who picks up the slack? If, if for some reason... Joe Biden decides not to run. I still think that's a possibility, even though he's invested a lot of time. Uh, you know, he may read to that Peggy Noonan and, and may get to him. Who picks up the slack if if he if he gets in and stumbles? Who picks up the slack? I think that we're going to see either an entry, an entrance into this race of someone uh, who's kind of Biden-like, uh, meaning more of a moderate, because there's definitely an opening for someone here. And Biden, why was Biden near the top of the polls? I maintain. Um, because he was not um, on the progressive left. That's what I maintain. Um, And so I think that that leaves an opening. Or whether it propels somebody like Tulsi Gabbard, who's also a moderate, uh, more to a main stage, I think. Well, what about Tim Ryan of of Ohio? Again, this is a member of Congress, is one. But there's there's already a long list of people. Uh, Amy Klobuchar could could fit that bill. I think there is a perfect comparison to Chicago's recent mayoral race. And the mayoral race, 21 candidates announced their candidacy. 18 filed petitions. 14 made it to the ballot. Now, the mayor-elect, a little over three months ago, was polling at less than 2%. All right? And she caught fire. So when we have all these Democratic candidates, yes, who's going to pick up the slack? You know, I, I love this process. Let's, we're all going to kick a lot of tires. We're going to see what we like. We're going to see who we don't like. And... and you never know who's who's going to rise to the top. My look, I'm I'm the only person in the world worried about this. I get laughed at all the time, <laughs> but I'm constantly worried that sitting out there on the sidelines watching all this is Michelle Obama saying, "I could win this thing and not even have to get up before noon each day," because she could. And I'm sure there's she people. Could. I'm sure there's people trying to get her to run. She would be an incredibly formidable candidate. Everybody who knows me thinks I'm insane, so maybe I am. With regard to the current field of Democrats, look, if this is the field, here's what we know. Somebody's going to win. That's, there's the, right. the, the axiomatic statement of the day. Uh, none of them are formidable. All of them, all of them are real big government activist-type folks who really want to use government aggressively for just about everything. So that's a tough way to run, but the nation is split uh, at the moment. We're, we're as fractured as we've been since the Civil War. Right. And how that would go, I don't know. I did not hear anybody break out in laughter, but I want to ask Jennifer Nevins, if Michelle Obama were to run, 
would you say she would put up one hell of a race? I do think she would, and not because she's a quality candidate, not because she has uh, any clue what to do with foreign policy, business, or anything else, because she's never done anything with foreign policy or business. But I think that she definitely would have the press on her side. I think she has a lot of support um, among her husband's supporters, obviously, so there's a natural uh, constituency there. So I would be um, afraid of it. I would love to see her in a debate with Trump. I think he would do wonderful there, but I, I would be scared about that matter. Yes. Michael Bauer. If you knew Michelle Obama, you would know that she actually hates politics. And she's hated politics her whole life. She put up with us because this was her husband's dream. It is not her dream. She is delighted that he is out of office. She will never run. Alexander, what do you think of the Hope concept? Right. So I, I'm watching the female candidates closely. and Only I keep, the female candidates? Well, you're not letting me finish my sentence. Okay. I'm watching, <laughs> I'm watching the female candidates again. closely. Um, and interestingly, I think we keep questioning, is it time for a woman? Is it time for a woman? And so that's what I am keenly aware of. And if Michelle were to run, which I agree with Michael, that's not happening. I think many of us would be enthused by her. Um, I do think that it's going to take a, a moderate Democrat. Um, I know that I've argued uh, what's moderate or not with the conservative side, and so I think my idea of moderate is different. But I think it's going to take a good moderate, and it might take a guy this go-around. When we come back, we'll talk about a potential guy and a potential woman. A gal. A guy (laughs) and a gal. Uh, We're going to talk about Mayor Pete Buttigieg of uh, South Bend. He was on Meet the Press today. I want to get your reaction if you saw it. And we'll talk a little bit about him. And also another moderate alternate would be Amy Klobuchar. I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly from Chicago. Debt. We can all get in a bit too deep. Members of the NFCC, the National Foundation for Credit Counseling, can help you put debt in its place. Credit cards took charge of my financial life. An NFCC credit counselor helped me get back in control. I took charge of my debt. Student loan debt followed me wherever I went. My NFCC financial advocate taught me all I needed to know. I mastered my student loan debt. We wanted to buy our first home, but weren't sure if we were mortgage ready. Our NFCC housing counselor helped us make a plan. We're on a path to our first home. NFCC member agencies serve all 50 states and Puerto Rico. Convenient, helpful, knowledgeable, nonprofit. Financial advocates there for you. We We put put debt in its place. Be one of 5 million people to beat debt by 2020. Connect with an NFCC certified credit counselor at your local member agency today. Go to nfcc.org slash stop debt or call 877-410-6322. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Thanks very much for joining us tonight. We've got great guests, great guests this evening, and we will let them introduce themselves now. And we begin with Michael Bauer. Uh, my name is Michael Bauer. I'm active in a number of civic organizations, and political activities. My two most prominent is I am the co-chair of the State of Illinois Holocaust and Genocide Commission, and I was the uh, chair of the very successful Lori Lightfoot for Mayor campaign here in Chicago. Now, I've got to ask you a couple of follow-up yes. questions. When, when you said from the very beginning you were going to be for Lori Lightfoot, yes. did you believe from the very beginning that she could make it or not? Tell well, us the truth. Well, actually, in the very beginning... I assumed she would be running against Rahm Emanuel and other people. And, and I had a very high expectation 
that she would beat Rahm Emanuel. She was the anti-Rahm candidate, and people in this town were tired of Rahm. Okay, but then you went into a period when it was hard to raise money because you were her chief well, the, fundraiser, right? Well, you I was also a finance dip, chair. Finance chair. And, and then we went into a period where Rahm announced he wasn't going to run, and all of a sudden a bunch of big dogs got in the race, and we went into a period that was a very difficult period. Okay. And then we went into another period where Ed Burke suddenly got indicted. Yes. And all of a sudden, you know, we came back alive. And uh, can one assume that, you're, that the fundraising is starting to flow, has started to flow since a week ago Tuesday? You're getting more checks well, to retire fund, debt? The, the, uh, she doesn't have debt. Uh, oh, debt. Okay. No, the money really started flooding in about the uh, first or second week in February. And it came pouring in. And after the uh, primary, it really came in. Unbelievable. Okay, so. now I want to ask, again, another inside yeah. question. Okay. Do you, as the finance person who was yes. watching over, are you keeping track, and is the candidate interested in knowing who was there first and who was there late? Because I've always been told that early money is, 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 means gold to a candidate. The people that were there at the very beginning, it, those donations mean a lot more emotionally than maybe even fiscally. I, I would put it a little differently. I, I would say that the mayor-elect is aware of who was with her last May when she first announced and who came on board after the uh, primary. Very good. Okay. Well, I hope she will remember that uh, she was a guest here, a little one-on-one we did uh, before the primary, and hopefully she'll come back as the mayor-elect. Let me have one more maybe thing. Maybe as mayor. Let me have yeah. one more thing. I think that pushed her over the top. Plus, well, my endorsement I, I, last I, I, my <laughs> endorsement last Sunday night for the first time ever. I think that's what moved it to landslide. I have no doubt. <laughs> but let, let me just add one more thing. We uh, were at an event that uh, a friend of mine had organized at a large law firm in Chicago a week or two after the uh, primary. And at one point, Lori, who actually has a very dry sense of humor, doesn't come across uh, very much in the campaign, but it, it's, it's a very funny sense of humor, one-on-one, leaned over to me and she said, look at all my new friends, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> also joining us is uh, Brent Hemacek. He joins us for the first time. Brent, tell us a little bit about you. I have had my own consulting practice for almost 20 years now uh, called Segway. I work with privately owned companies and uh, with a team of great folks up in Glenview, and we solve unsolvable problems and help uh, help those companies fight against big business and big government, uh, which is an awful pairing uh, for the privately owned business to compete against. Yep. And I also then do a lot of uh, political work, especially with regard to content, ideas, and those sorts of things. I had a chance early on to work with Turning Point USA, Charlie Kirk, and wrote his book uh, with him. We co-wrote Time for a Turning Point. Good. Okay. And again, long time Viewers and listeners know Charlie Kirk uh, was a regular on this show for quite some time, and then he became very, very big and very, very famous. We'll talk about more, more about him a little bit later on. Alexandra Eidenberg. Excited to be here. Alexandra Eidenberg, I'm the founder of an organization called We Will. It stands for Women Empowering Women in Local Legislation, and we help women and children get involved in their community. We have written, passed, and testified for legislation in Illinois, and I love being an organizer, a small business owner, and mom. And Jennifer Nevins. 
Yes, um, I am usually introduced on this show as being the original Trumper, and what that means is when there were 17 candidates on the debate stage, I was for Donald Trump. Uh, the minute he came down uh, the escalator, actually maybe about 10 minutes after he came down the <laughs> escalator. Um, yes, and I vote Republican, although it is increasingly difficult for me to define myself uh, as a Republican these days. Um, I'm an anti-establishment fighter. Um, I admire that uh, when I come across that in both political parties, and uh, I am just, as always, happy to be here. Very good. We've got callers on the line. Let's go to line one. Art is listening to us on WCGO, our Chicago affiliate. Go ahead. Yeah, good evening, uh, Bruce. Another great show. Thank you. Uh, hopefully you'll be talking about Mrs. Nielsen in the upcoming hour. Yes, we will talk about that. Uh, yeah. uh, but- Secretary Nielsen has resigned as the head of uh, the Department of Homeland Security, but go ahead. Yeah, my comment is, uh, what does the panel think of uh, John Kasich possibly running as an independent or even as a Democrat? I wouldn't mind that. Um, there's been discussion in the past on this program about John Kasich. Let me ask you, uh, Brent, where do you... Well, if he look, if he does run, uh, he should run as a Democrat because he is one. Uh, certainly they can, they can have him. Uh, he would be a formidable candidate in the sense that he would be credible. He would be... Alexandra's moderate, uh, if you will. Um, I'm, he, I'm not a fan, obviously. You can probably tell. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't hold my values. Uh, I'm, I'm particularly offended back in the last campaign when he was trying to tell us Catholic folks what it meant to be a good Catholic. I'm not terribly fond of that. But uh, look, if he runs as an independent, uh, I think it actually on some level almost hurts both parties although it probably hurts Democrats more than Republicans because there aren't too many people that would vote for Donald Trump who would ever consider voting for John Kasich. Right. Yeah. Jennifer, you, you know, agree? I, yes, I do. I was at the RNC uh, in 2016, and I saw up close and personal um, the destruction that he wrought in Cleveland and caused a huge spectacle. And uh, he really – he is a case of someone who is so riddled with envy um, yeah. such a, such hatred. I think he looks at Trump and sees everything that he wanted to be and couldn't be, both in politics and in business. And so I find him, uh, he will be the media darling if he steps in. It's going to be McCain all over again. He's and Chuck he might Todd's really, favorite. yeah, I think he might really enjoy that because he's going to get money out of it, book deals out of it. The whole thing will be a, a great ride for him. But he has absolutely no place in our uh, side of the aisle uh, as far as running as a candidate. And as far as what he does, I, I really can't say I care. Uh, Michael Bauer? Well, if he, if he were to jump in, I think if he were to do it, I think it, it would be foolish if he ran as an independent. But again, if, if he were to renounce the Republican Party and jump into the Democratic Party, would, uh, would there be Democrats there welcoming him? Or have they already got enough people to choose from? I think he would be DOA on the day he announced. Okay. And I'll explain why. He is, an, he is anti-choice, and there's no room in the Democratic Party anymore for an anti-choice candidate to run for president. He would have trouble not only attracting money, he would have trouble basically attracting staff. Yeah. Which is unusual you say that in a way because I don't know if he would have trouble being a pro-lifer attracting voters necessarily. Because I, I think, didn't say that. Yeah, right, and that's right, the thing. Right. Yeah, I know you didn't. Because that's the thing that the Democrats, especially this far-left crew that's running right now, never seem to understand is that, yeah, there's a general you have to run in as well. And not every old-school Democrat, and right. there are many of them, uh, necessarily fall in line with uh, being pro-choice. Well, I also think that, you know, uh, Tim Ryan, the congressman uh, from Mahoning County and, uh, uh, you know, Youngstown, Ohio, I mean, he announced yesterday, and we've asked this uh, on this program for the last several months, 
Who is the Democrat that's going to beat Donald Trump in Wisconsin and Michigan and Ohio and possibly Pennsylvania? The answer to that is I think it's Tim Ryan. I don't think it's any of these other you know, far lefties that are out there. But, again, how does he make it? He did show the courage when he was the only one that decided to stand up and run against Nancy Pelosi. Right. That showed some, some guts. Uh, he's attractive. He's articulate. Uh, he's from the Rust Belt. But, again, uh, you know, does he you – know, like, well, likely to win the Ohio primary. I think he could win the if he's, if he's around by the Ohio primary. I would have a soft spot for him just because of the Youngstown connection. It's one of my favorite Springsteen songs. Yeah, so there you go. I mean, <laughs> other than that. So, you know, as a Democrat, you know, I consider myself to be a moderate Democrat, yet I share all the progressive values. I never find myself able to assimilate with being a full progressive. I think in today's day and age to be a progressive, you almost have to be willing to burn the house down. And so it's interesting this go around. I've watched my friends really flock over to Bernie already and just latch right onto that. And so I'm interested in seeing is are, are we ready for this intense progressive movement or do we need that moderate? And I oscillate between, you know, where we're going and what we're doing in the Democratic Party. I want to find out uh, today on Meet the Press, Mayor Pete Buttigieg of uh, South Bend, Indiana, uh, who has uh, been really rising very fast lately. He's not officially announced. He's going to announce a week from today in South Bend. But he was on uh, with Chuck Todd, and uh, he was asked to talk about his credentials and what would, what would make him unique as a 37-year-old governor from a small Midwestern town. And this is what he said. I would argue that being a mayor of a city of any size means that you have to deal with the kinds of issues that uh, really hit Americans. It's everything from infrastructure to economic development to racial sensitivities in policing, not to mention the fact that I would also have more military experience under my belt than anybody to walk into that office since George H.W. Bush. So I think it's about uh, quality uh, as well as quantity and experience. But, uh, you know, I, I think you can also see pretty clearly that I'm about as different from this president as it gets. Would you agree with that? He didn't say he was openly gay. Well, that's pretty different as well. Michael Bauer, you have met Mayor Pete. Are you surprised that he is moving along as fast as he appears to be moving? Uh, First of all, yes, I am. I am surprised. Uh, He is a very likable person. He he is charismatic, certainly. Uh, I will tell you from my perspective, he is woefully ignorant about foreign policy. His now, and you'll notice he only talks about certain domestic issues related to him being mayor of South Bend. Right. He doesn't talk about anything, you know, right. from a global perspective. He doesn't have a foreign policy. I don't think he's South ready Bend. for prime time from my perspective. I'm Bruce Dumont. We'll get the reaction from the other guests and perhaps from you. 1-800-723-8289. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive. But our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. 
Learn more at LLS.org. Back in Chicago, I want to get uh, uh, Brent's uh, reaction to uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Uh, he's, getting a, he's getting a great show in the national media. Sure, he'll get a great show in the national media. He's, uh, you know, he speaks well, he, he shows well. Uh, but I think in the last segment, the, the part about uh, going at it so quickly, right? And I, uh-huh. So that's the bigger story here. Because the bigger story is what Donald Trump did in 2015-16 by sort of skipping to the end. So it was like the old commercial, how many licks does it take to get to the middle of a Tootsie Roll pop? One, two, and then the guy bites through and says three. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what we're doing here, and we're, we're going to see more and more of this, people trying to just sort of skip to the end and say, well, I did something. Now I'm going to go run for president. Social media makes it possible right. to be yeah. able to pull that off. I also think, regardless of his very nice-looking um, packaging and the way he speaks and his wealth of experience, including experience in the military, he is still what I would consider a progressive Democrat. He's for the Green New Deal. Um, he's for a host of – he's very uh, pro-gun control. So he's going to run into the same um, issues that anybody from the field is going to have um, when they get into uh, past the primary. What about uh, back to you? Because again, you you mentioned uh, you're not a fan of, of Mayor Pete. Not watching, yeah. And, and you're not a big fan because of why? So, first of all, I agree with some of the kind of the youth to it. He's newer to it, and he's making a big jump. But he made a statement um, about Chick Fil A recently, and that's just where my head stuck. And so he made a comment about how you know their their food was good, even though their politics weren't. And he wanted to try to coordinate some kind of relationship where people were not protesting against Chick Fil A. And I think that for me, what that showed me is he wasn't focused on the critical issues going on in our nation. If he wanted to make a statement about Chick Fil A, I'm not watching his candidacy. I think there's a lot of great people of in the, the field. It just was the cherry on the top, just kind of confirmation he's not my guy. Um, what about Amy Klobuchar? She does not appear to be gaining a lot of media coverage, strength, and yet uh, she is sort of a moderate Midwestern person. If Joe Biden decided not to run, would she get a boost or not? What do you think? You're shaking your head, Brent. No. She, look, I, I think it's fascinating that so many people want to run for president. This isn't yeah. new, by the way. Some of the, the fa- some of the people that jump in, you know, from a very low level, like the mayor of, of, a, of a town in Indiana, that's new. But bunches of people jumping in to run, that's not new. And she has no chance, none, zero, of winning the nomination. But yet she'll run and get some publicity. I guess you write a book, uh, something. But it fascinates me that people want to do this when there's no possible way they're going to win. Would you say the same thing about Tim Ryan? Yeah, he's not going to win. Okay. Yeah. So interestingly, um, with my organization, We Will, we, we talk about the candidates who folks are liking, and a lot of our women are really interested in Amy. She's more moderate. They feel like they can see more eye-to-eye with her, and some of the Republican women um, in our organization are interested in her as well, which has me you know, watching her more myself. I've been watching um, Kamala quite a bit myself, Kamala Harris. I'm very excited about her. I think right now we're all uh, – I don't think – I mean, there are some folks that are already donating and getting in, but I know for myself, I think this is the watching phase. On the, uh, on the issue of the, they're always talking about the lanes that, that candidates are looking for, 
looking at Mayor Pete, doesn't he have a lot more credibility than Beto O'Rourke? I mean, they're, they're, oh, they're, well. they're both young. They're both articulate. One ran for Congress and lost, and the other one's been running up, even though it's a small city. Does he have more bona fides than, than uh, Robert Francis O'Rourke? Sure. I mean, because he does, because he's done something. Yeah. So, yes, the answer is yes, he does. But neither one of them have – neither one of them are going to win. But in, in um, our presidential politics, we tend to run someone and elect someone who's the very opposite of the incumbent president. Yes. We've done that a lot. And if you look at the incumbent president, in many ways, Amy Klobuchar is the exact opposite in so many ways. She, and, so is a lot of Democrats, though. A lot of well, Democrats. a lot of Democrats. But Bernie Sanders I, I, I is mean, the opposite, too. I know Amy Klobuchar. I think very, very highly of her. I think she's very thoughtful. I think she's very bright. I think she's very articulate. She has a wonderful sense of humor. She's very likable. She, she will play well in the bus belt, which is where the Democrats need to play well. As you mentioned, Tim Ryan. Well, Amy Klobuchar will play there well also. So you never know how this is going to but be. But why all the bad PR about what a, what a, you know what she is to to work for? Because women get that and men don't. Oh, men yes. are uh, men are uh, are uh, painted as tough bosses. Women are are tainted very differently mm-hmm. with the same Does exact characteristics. Does everybody agree with that? Because I mean, some of the some of the percent. some of the PR that's come out or the the negative publicity, it's been about women staffers saying things. They're not male staffers saying right. it. And I think women uh, are just innately very hard on one another. I think that whatever happened to us back in high school, we come to the table with our dukes up. We're not always friendly to one another. And I think that we're we're at a time where women don't always. (laughs) I I would agree with you, actually. (laughs) I I actually would. And I have worked for many female bosses. um, And brother, I'll take a male boss. I'm sorry, I'll say it. Any day of the week. It's just the way it is. Amen. And you both would agree on that. <laughs> yes, we would. Holy mackerel. I think we've made history here on Beyond the Beltway. You would prefer a male boss. Let's go get a drink. But you, <laughs> you prefer a male boss, but you don't want a male president. But, here's, but that goes back to I don't think we're ready for a female president in some ways. And it's hard uh, to say that and think that. But I think that's where we're at. Okay, we got to pause. I'm going to have you back future. with another guest in a little bit. Back shortly from Chicago. April Jewell, a teacher in Ballard County School District in Kentucky. Last year, we received word that our school had been selected to receive a $25,000 grant from the America's Farmers Grow Rural Education Program, sponsored by the Monsanto Fund, a philanthropic arm of Bayer. 
The grant is designed to help further science, technology, engineering, and math education. We used it to upgrade the technology in our classrooms to enhance health science curriculum and better prepare our students for various career paths. Now through April 1st, farmers can nominate a school district to apply for $10,000 or $25,000 grants aimed at improving STEM education. I would encourage all eligible farmers to nominate today for a chance to make a lasting impact in countless classrooms. The process takes less than five minutes and farmers can nominate their school district by visiting americasfarmers.com. That's americasfarmers.com. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Debt. We can all get in a bit too deep. Members of the NFCC, the National Foundation for Credit Counseling, can help you put debt in its place. Credit cards took charge of my financial life. An NFCC credit counselor helped me get back in control. I took charge of my debt. Student loan debt followed me wherever I went. My NFCC financial advocate taught me all I needed to know. I mastered my student loan debt. We wanted to buy our first home, but weren't sure if we were mortgage ready. Our NFCC housing counselor helped us make a plan. We're on a path to our first home. NFCC member agencies serve all 50 states and Puerto Rico. Convenient, helpful, knowledgeable, nonprofit. Financial advocates there for you. We We put put debt debt in its place. Be one of 5 million people to beat debt by 2020. Connect with an NFCC certified credit counselor at your local member agency today. Go to nfcc.org slash stop debt or call 877-410-6322. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. I'm sure you have heard the news that uh, Kirsten Nielsen is uh, resigned as the Homeland Security Secretary, which I think uh, doesn't surprise too many people. It was rumored several months ago that she was going to do it, although she did spend uh, the last week or a couple of days or a day with the president on the border in California uh, dealing with the issue that is down there. And so I want to spend the next uh, segment or two talking about what happens next? And I want to hear from our Democrats. I mean, the Democrats continue to say there's not a crisis on the southern border. Uh, last week, uh, uh, Johnson, who was the head of uh, DHS during the Obama administration, he finally acknowledged that the numbers are devastating, and he said there is a crisis there. 100,000 people were stopped at the border uh, just last month. I mean, there are, th- there, there are tens of thousands uh, that are waiting to be seen by a judge to deal with asylum issues, and these are, in many cases, involving children. So um, do you think that this is going to emerge, uh, Michael, as, as another key issue of 2020 because the president is clearly going to be seen on one side and the Democrats are going to be seen there saying no, 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 without any uh, major uh, answer to the question of uh, 
people and the onslaught to the country? Well, let me deal first with whether it's a crisis or not. The situation on the southern border has dramatically changed from my perspective in the last six months. Six months ago, the number of, of migrants coming through, through the border was uh, less than half what it is today. All of a sudden, it's escalating the last several months, and we, we do have a crisis, all right? The problem is we don't know, neither party knows, how are we going to fix this problem? Uh, a border wall, we all know, is not going to fix the problem, and plus the fact a border wall is going to take years to build, all right? And we have a short term. You don't, you don't think it solves a problem, but a lot of Republicans do. Well, maybe a lot of Republicans do. I don't think it solves the problem. And I will add that I think the president threatening to cut off aid to El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras actually um, uh, uh, Hurts. Incre- increases the problem because it will encourage more people to flee their native countries and come up through Mexico. Let's go, let's go to Jennifer. Jennifer Nevins? Um, I think that even getting aside from the wall, and we've had many different people from the Department of Homeland Security, people um, who work the border, who said, yes, you know what? When we don't have a wall, we need 10 times the people patrolling that wall to keep the people out. Yes. Okay, if you're not going to have um, – so that costs – what does that cost? A lot of money. They're having yes. to pull – just this week, they're pulling 750 um, officers from our northern border and having them come down to patrol the southern border. And it's things like this when you don't have a wall or don't have a barrier or a fence or whatever you want to call it um, that exacerbate this problem. You know, the Democrats voted for 700 miles of fencing uh, during the Obama administration. Some of that is still being um, constructed today. And now we have this problem where Nancy Pelosi is saying it is immoral. I mean, it's, is, it's is really... There, is there one of the other things, though, uh, Brent, that, that you have... Uh, the, the, the fact is that those that were coming to seek asylum and were going to the official uh, entry points, they've now been inundated. You have judges. I mean, they, there's literally 40,000, 50,000 cases right. of asylum seekers involving children. I mean, how do you, it seems to me that that's the thing that sort of separates, uh, you know, or it's got to, it's got to wake up the Democrats that this really is an incredibly difficult issue. I don't, I don't know that anything will wake up the Democrats. Certainly the Republicans haven't been awakened. And uh, there's so much ground here to cover. Uh, This is a Republican party problem. The Republicans had the House and Senate for two years. They did Nothing. Donald Trump did them a favor. The shutdown that he forced to the government back in uh, the latter part of last year, you notice he didn't do that prior. He could have, but he was giving the Republican House and Senate a chance to do something. Mm -hmm. But Messrs. Ryan and McConnell weren't willing. And so now Mm -hmm. we sit here with a court system that has hamstrung the executive branch. It's no surprise that this has gotten worse in the last six months because the courts have made it worse. They've given encouragement to people to keep come to or to keep coming. The one thing I want to say on the on the foreign aid piece, it makes every sense to cut off every dollar. None of the dollars we're giving now have stopped anything from happening. None of the dollars we're giving now are making people's lives better. The idea that the money if we you give... lose, if you lose the leverage, the president is arguing, saying the, the leverage isn't working. Right. If you take the leverage away, what is it that makes those countries want to wake up and help the U.S. more? 
if you take the leverage away of you mean you threatening take the to money ta- away you take the money away right well if you take the money away why should those three countries cooperate with the United States well, at all because but they, they want the money back I well, would and the, well yeah and they're not no? they're not cooperating now with the money I mean the, I I don't understand why you would continue to pay people to behave badly this problem needs to be solved at the border not with money being sent to Central America. That's not the solution. Well, here, here's something. The, 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 uh, the president went uh, several steps further last week in talking about the situation at the border because he spent some time at the border with, with Secretary Nielsen. And this is what the president said about the United States and whether or not we have enough space to welcome more people from Central America. This is our new statement. The system is full can't take you anymore. Whether it's asylum, whether it's uh, anything you want, it's illegal immigration, can't take you anymore. We can't take you. Our country is full. Our country is full is what he said. But he also said the system was full. I mean, I I think, you know, the headline was when he said the country is full, because I don't think anybody buys that. But when he said the system was full, could you acknowledge that if there's if there's forty five fifty thousand people waiting for judges to deal with asylum, would you say that that indicates a system that's broken? Our immigration system is extremely broken. This has been going on for years. I particularly grew up in the fourth district. I've watched Louis Gutierrez work on immigration for years. Some of you might know I ran against him in 2014 as I wasn't under the impression we were getting anywhere with immigration. And so we are still at a juncture in the United States where we do not have pathways to help people immigrate appropriately. And I do agree that we are in a crisis mode and our system is not working well right now. We but don't what have is enough it, but judges. What, but th- that's well and good, Alexandra. But what are the Democrats going to do about it? What is, why are they perceived as being anti-solving a problem? This is why a, were the Republicans against doing anything? And I, you know, Brent, Brent I think made said a point. The, Brent the made a right point. I can tell you. I can tell you. For two years, why? there was total Republican control oh. of the Senate and I the House. I totally agree and, with that. And there wasn't I, I a single hearing. And I agree not a single with you. Hearing and I would say issue. in both cases, the Republicans and the Democrats, self-interest played a role there. We all yes. know the Chamber of Commerce and the rest of those cronies have their hooks into the Republican Party. They always have. Right. And those same people want cheap labor, whether it's illegal or, or what have you. The Democrats, and I will maintain this, and I'm sure you guys would argue with me, want people to be they incentivize people to come here. They are the candidates we have running now are running loud and proud about all the benefits they want to give to illegal people. So that's going to increase the flow. They're not interested in decreasing the flow. They want eventually them to become voters. They've said that before, and that's their self-interest. So one 800 We got callers on the line. They want to weigh in on this. I'm sure you want to weigh in. Is there enough? space left in the country. I mean, he's obviously not been to Montana or Wyoming. There's a few, there's some extra space in this country uh, for people. But the system, do we have enough judges? How many judges do we need to deal with the backlog for asylum? Hi, I'm April Jewell, a teacher in Ballard County School District in Kentucky. Last year, we received word that our school had been selected to receive a $25,000 grant from the America's Farmers Grow Rural Education Program sponsored by the Monsanto Fund, a philanthropic arm of Bayer. The grant is designed to help further science, technology, engineering, and math education. We used it to upgrade the technology in our classrooms 
to enhance health science curriculum and better prepare our students for various career paths. Now through April 1st, farmers can nominate a school district to apply for $10,000 or $25,000 grants aimed at improving STEM education. I would encourage all eligible farmers to nominate today for a chance to make a lasting impact in countless classrooms. The process takes less than five minutes and farmers can nominate their school district by visiting americasfarmers.com. That's americasfarmers.com. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. We're going to go to calls now. Let's go to beautiful Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where Rodney is listening to us on Sirius XM Satellite Radio tonight on POTUS. Go ahead, Rodney. Um, uh, Bruce, I'm going to change my subject to what was on the computer to uh, okay. talk about what the current conversation. Sure. Um, one thing I, I want, well, first of all, I think the uh, right, uh, and the left are looking at this totally wrong um, because uh, I think that, look, I'm a moderate independent. They're so, looking at, uh, uh, Rodney, they're looking at what uh, wrong? What do you mean? What subject? The problem at the border okay. and all of that type of thing. Um, look, when we get, I don't believe America at heart is a nationalist country. And um, once we get past all of the Trump era and, as, and the Republicans go back to being Republicans, um, we're going to need to look at the future, and we're going to need these trading partners in, um, in South America. And we need a Marshall Plan um, to uh, help fix some of the damage that we have done ourselves over the years. And uh, in a vacuum that Trump wants to leave, like he has all over the country, or all over the world in foreign policy, that vacuum is going to be filled. And it's going to be filled by the, by the Chinese. And the Chinese are going to want oil and beef and everything okay. that South America can give Let's, them. Let's uh, uh, t- take a break, Rodney. I want to let Jennifer yeah. respond to your comment thus far. It's interesting yeah. because I saw the original topic that um, this guest wanted to uh, talk about, and that was Kasich. And what we just heard was mm-hmm. very uh, Kasich-like. And that is a strain. This is a part of the issue that Donald Trump is facing. It's this um, old-school Republican uh, network. And I would exclude the Freedom Caucus from that. There are some real conservative uh, Republicans in Trump's corner. But by and large, this whole idea that um, we need this other way and Trump's way of dealing with people um, is this uh, – thuggish kind of a thing, um, I view that as really backward thinking. And I think that this, um, that this caller, God bless him, kind of exemplifies um, the difficulties that Trump is having right now. Well, I, I, Jennifer, okay, I will I disagree with you. Go, go ahead, Rodney, and then we'll go to Michael. Go ahead. Um, do you think globalization is going to change anytime soon in the future? I think that Trump has really struck a blow against globalization. Do I think that he has the power to change um, the way that the world operates? Um, to some degree, yes, and to a large degree, no. So. Michael's got a and, comment, Rodney. And I agree with the uh, caller. Um, Rodney, I, I, I totally agree with you that I think we need a Marshall Plan for Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. We should be investing significantly in those countries to boost their economy, and, and to tackle the gangs so people have less incentive to come to the United States. Do we need to deal with, yeah. the, with the practical thing that going right, that's going on right now, where you have f- f- tens of thousands of people waiting to see a judge, 
do we need thousands and thousands of more judges, even if it's on a temporary basis? I mean, if these people are coming, I understand a wall or troops or whatever can, can stop them from physically getting in the United States. But again, if they're coming here to seek asylum and we don't have enough, way to, enough uh, people in place to administer that, do we invest money in going out so that we can administer all these, uh, these people coming towards our border? Or does that just exacerbate the situation and make more people rush towards us? Brent. I, I think that if we were – you can't manufacture judges. And, you know, they're not, uh, they're not parts on an assembly line. You know, we could temporarily appoint emergency judges, I guess. I don't know how that would work. The people we have right now who are real judges are behaving so badly and so non-judiciously the idea that we would sort of deputize other people in the legal system to try to sift through this, uh, I can't even begin to imagine the unintended consequences from that, but I don't think they'd be good. Look, the, an- the answer is as simple as it sounds cold. People need to be turned around and forced to leave. They need to be forced onto vehicles and sent back. They can't be here. We want to not Mexico say that. Is, Mexico is now doing that. I mean, the president has, has demanded that one of the things about closing the border, and one of the reasons why he, he changed his mind and has now given them a year, is because someone has reported to him that Mexico is taking some of these folks that have snuck into Mexico, and they're sending them back and their children back to where they came from. So Mexico, in some cases, is acting stronger than, than we are, although they don't have a, a political opposition down there that is like our political opposition. So, you know, I'm, I'm wearing my business hat, and anytime you have more, more of something coming in that demands more workers, you compensate for it. And I get that you guys don't want to be open for business, but these are human beings, and I feel like there has to be folks that are qualified to be judges that we can bring in in order to assist with this situation. I'm also reminded of Fox accidentally referring to these three, um, you know, South American, Central American countries as three Mexican countries. And I think this all goes back around to the fact that we have a population of people that just don't want folks that are south of our border coming in, and they're not willing to compromise in any way in order to let them peacefully come here and and be in a safe place and grow with us and work hard and be a part of our community. Well, I'm going to disagree a little bit. Let me, as a Democrat, disagree a little bit with Alexandra because we can't take in everyone. And if you actually look at the next 20 years, we're going to have tens of millions of people potentially around the globe on the march uh, due to climate change, due to at least drought, due to famine, uh, moving to other countries. We've seen what's going on in Europe the last five years. And Europe is becoming increasingly a mess for, on, on many levels. Yes. And, and I don't know what the solution is, but frankly, there not only needs to be a solution for this country, there needs to be a solution across the globe on how we're going to deal with all these increasingly uh, millions of migrants. Well, I would say that I have a, a problem with um, Guatemalans and, and El Salvadorans who, who come over and they go all the way through Mexico and they say, we're here, um, we want to seek asylum, when there are millions upon millions upon millions mm. of people living 
very successful, good lives in Mexico. Not everybody, but a lot of people do. People choose to stay in Mexico because there are opportunities in Mexico. So if you're really basing this on I'm not safe and I have political opposition and I want a better life for my children, there is another option, and that is Mexico. So um, I think that uh, working with Mexico on that, incentivizing Mexico, whatever we can do to keep more people in a perfectly fine country, which would be Mexico, would um, benefit us. Well, I think there's a lot of people that would disagree with you when you say perfectly fine country like Mexico, because uh, one of the reasons why so many Mexicans have come to the United States and continue to want to come here is things are not so great in Mexico. Well, no, I mean, there's problems there, but there's problems here, too. We look at our inner cities, and there is is crime-ridden as as you would Do we need, then, do we need, do we need, then is to increase our uh, our support of Mexico, our foreign policy and our and our foreign aid to Mexico. Because if we're asking, if we don't think that Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala are doing their job, do we take that amount of money? Do we give it to Mexico in hopes that they're going to deal with it? When we have to understand that Mexico is a corrupt country. Well, it in is a, death a corrupt country. It, in a deathly country where the, where the uh, death rate, yes. murder rate, yes. is exorbitant. Well, yes. it is. And when I say it's a perfectly fine country, what I mean by that is is it's there are definite possibilities there. There is an infrastructure there. It's not a third world right. nation. And I think that possibly giving aid to Mexico, possibly building places for people to live as they wait for asylum so they're not here and Mexico and clogging is a third our world system. country in many parts of the country. Well, it, I think they would dispute it, whether they're a well, third of course world they, country. They would, but the tourist no, people of course they're a third world country. And they're nothing really now but a drug feudal state. That's what Mexico is. But for people who wanted to cry the notion of American exceptionalism, here's the problem. We're the greatest nation on earth, whether anybody likes it or not, and that comes with a price. Everybody wants to come here. So our problem is we're a really big draw, and there's not enough seats at the theater. So it's time that we take some really tough action to say no more. Everybody that shows up at our southern border to just walk in, they all know they came here and they weren't supposed to. It's not a surprise. Are Are we the greatest country in the world if we and our political parties cannot solve this crisis. I mean, this has been going on for for 30 years. We're not the greatest nation on earth because of our political parties. We're the greatest political, or the greatest nation on earth because of what we've built and done here by free individuals. So let me follow up on what Brent said, because I think you, once again, I think you're hitting really a, a very strong point. I personally think that I want the United States to be open to people who are seeking political asylum based on, based on, legitimate threats to their lives or persecution based on their religion or their ethnicity, et cetera. That's right. We cannot, or their sexual orientation. Or their sexual orientation. Absolutely. Thank you. On the other hand, I recognize we, cannot, we don't have the capability of taking in all these economic migrants. My difficulty is I don't know where you draw the line. And that is the problem we are struggling with today, last year, the last 10 years, and, you know, we don't know where to draw the line or how to draw the line. Well, introducing children to the equation only makes it more difficult. And those people that want to come to the country, whether they're, they're mules or whether they're the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the gangs in Central America or <clears throat> a mother and father who want the best for their children, I mean, 
someone coming to our border who's got two or three children clenched to them, yes. they go to the top of the line. And when they go to the top of the line, they still have to wait year. I mean, this is where you've got, you know, almost 60,000 people waiting. They got children clinging to them, yeah. which makes the picture look worse. And when you try to put them, uh, just, you know, gather them and you put them in a cage, it looks horrible because you put them in a cage. But that's how you can find people. I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly for sure. Debt. We can all get in a bit too deep. Members of the NFCC, the National Foundation for Credit Counseling, can help you put debt in its place. Credit cards took charge of my financial life. An NFCC credit counselor helped me get back in control. I took charge of my debt. Student loan debt followed me wherever I went. My NFCC financial advocate taught me all I needed to know. I mastered my student loan debt. We wanted to buy our first home, but weren't sure if we were mortgage ready. Our NFCC housing counselor helped us make a plan. We're on a path to our first home. NFCC member agencies serve all 50 states and Puerto Rico. Convenient, helpful, knowledgeable, nonprofit. Financial advocates there for you. We We put put debt debt in in its place. Be one of 5 million people to beat debt by 2020. Connect with an NFCC certified credit counselor at your local member agency today. Go to nfcc.org slash stop debt or call 877-410-6322. Still on back to Chicago. Nice to have you with us. We're having a lot of fun here. Hopefully you're having fun uh, listening to us at home. <clears throat> I hope my voice makes it for the next half hour. Um, we have got great guests. Uh, our Democrats this evening, Michael Bauer is here. Alexandra Eidenberg is here. Uh, and on the on the independent or Republican side, uh, we have Brent uh, Hamachuk and we have Jennifer Nevins with us. Okay, I almost said you were Republican. He's not a Republican. He's an independent. I wish I could. But he like but you like Donald Trump. I a do. lot of people on that a lot of people on that seat they're Republicans, but they don't like Donald Trump. Yeah. Right. But you're an independent who likes Donald Trump. So well, I I wish I could be a Republican. It'd be <clears> nice <throat> to have a home, but in good faith, yeah. I just can't be. That's okay. As long you know, as long as you vote. And even if you don't vote, that's okay. Anyway, uh, let's come back, and uh, we're, we're trying to solve this issue on the, on the southern border. And uh, uh, I began by asking, could we have a legitimate debate, the Republican position versus the Democratic position? But the Democratic position is very vague. I mean, it, it's, it's not as specific as Donald Trump's uh, plan, which is to, uh, you know, at least primarily build the wall. But building the wall is not the be-all to end-all. It's right. these other issues that we're trying to deal with, like the, the need for more judges, the need to handle, uh, you know, children in a, in a meaningful way. And then, you know, the Democrat uh, in a plan for that, you know, just a couple of months ago was, well, we're going to build just X number of beds because, we don't, because that's all we want is we want to have everybody have a bed. So if we restrict the number of beds... We're going to restrict the number of people coming here. That makes no sense. That is a stupid idea by the Democrats. If you're trying to solve the problem and you have 20,000 people waiting to get into your country and go through the asylum process, maybe you need 20,000 beds. Maybe some of these beds are in Mexico, and Mexico is already cooperating in that respect. But again, you know, to say, well, we're going to, we're going to build only you know, you know, 1,000 beds, but I Bruce, mean, that's, that's a harebrained idea. By the Democrat. Would you well, agree Bruce, with that? That's a harebrained I, I idea. I don't think you're even adequately <clears throat> defining what the problem is. The problem is a twofold problem on the southern border, not a single problem. 
It's, it's a problem of the number of people coming across the border. It's also a problem of the, of the amount of drugs coming across the border. Yes. And keep in mind, 90% <clears throat> of the drugs, according to the DEA, that come across the southern border are coming through U.S. ports of entry on the southern border. And, and, and this is creating a, a major problem in many of our states with the uh, heroin mm. epidemic. So there, there are many things we should be doing, and we're focused solely on the people coming across, and we're not fixing any of these problems. Do we need a bipartisan discussion of trying to reduce the appetite for drugs in the United States? This problem is a problem because America is hooked on illicit drugs. Yes. Now, again, we had the Nancy Reagan approach and the war on drugs, which I, I don't think worked. But, again, it seems to me like we've kind of thrown up our hands to this issue. But a reality is if, if, if Americans knew or more Americans knew or there was a significant campaign to let American citizens know that if they are users of drugs, they are perpetuating this situation which is causing a national security right. problem for the country. Could we have that discussion, or is that too old-fashioned? Jennifer? Yeah, we can have the discussion, but then when you talk about what are you going to do about it, like fentanyl, for example, and this is a huge problem. Right. There was over right. 70,000 deaths from fentanyl last year. Right. It's absolutely amazing, and a lot of that comes over from Mexico. But where are a lot of people getting that? Through doctor's offices, getting it through all these different chains? It's, it's difficult. How do we attack that problem? It's another drug war. Yeah, we probably need another drug war, but then that's a whole other apparatus in and of itself, and it's just, frankly, it's just overwhelming. I don't know what the solution is. Brent. The, the war on drugs failed. Yes. Uh, this is a demand-side, market-based activity. It's not a supply-side activity. Uh, it's driven by demand. You talked about Americans having this appetite for drugs. We do. So if there's going to be a I don't know about a discussion or a conversation. I'm never quite sure what those actually mean when it involves politics. It just seems to be people giving speeches. But until we get to the point where we find some way to get most people to not want to introduce bad substances into their individual bodies, we'll lose the war on drugs every time. It's a demand-side problem, and demand's huge. Right. Is there, any way to is there any way to have a conversation about this issue so more and more Americans understand that, that involving themselves in the drug trade by participating, they are creating a national security problem at our border, which is causing tens of thousands of women and children coming to our border, and, we ha and there's no room for them, and maybe we have to put them in a, in, a, in a cage or whatever it is, but those people wouldn't be coming if the attraction and the flow of drugs... So the drug stop. crisis is completely bipartisan. It's, it's nonpartisan. Yes, it is. It is. I think we've gotten to a point in our nation where it's either you're a progressive Democrat or you're a right-wing person and there's no conversation any longer. Mm. I've actually had the pleasure of talking to Brent quite a few times, and we probably agree on absolutely nothing but we have wonderful conversation of which we can come on the other side and have an answer. And I think that in today's day and age, our politicians are no longer 
to a point where they can agree to disagree in order to move our country forward. And it's really terrifying. Um, right now, my organization, We Will, is supporting Legalize Illinois, which is to legalize marijuana. And there's research, you know, research behind legalizing marijuana to help the heroin epidemic. But ultimately, at the end of the day, until we're all willing to deal with the problem, and for me, I think it's grassroots. It comes down to town halls in every single state, having the conversation, bringing your local legislators together and dealing with a problem, because it's affecting so many families, everyday lives. The border is a larger crisis with it, but really, it's infiltrated everywhere. It's it's affecting all economic levels. And I think that these are the kind of issues that if we can't come together on some of the bigger things, let's come together and protect people. You know, years ago, the U.S. Solicitor General issued a report on smoking and, and discussed how many, uh, in his report, talked about how many people, uh, tens of thousands of people are dying every year from lung cancer due to smoking. And there was a concerted effort in this country, a public relations effort, among other things, but also laws passed, to discourage people from smoking. Frankly, we need the same thing on these illegal drugs, on fentanyl, on cocaine, to discourage people from consuming, and also that people who are in, who are in the middle stream of being suppliers mm-hmm. are frankly killers. Well, and I they would, are killers, yeah. and they should be treated as killers by the, by the uh, criminal justice system. I would agree with you, and I think that your example of smoking is a good one because it used to be everybody smoked. My parents right. smoked, everybody smoked. Now it's kind of uh, hard to find. It's, it's right. But that didn't take You look take down place. at people who smoke. You do, but that took place over a period of decades, really. Yes. It ratcheted down from the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and unfortunately we just don't seem to have that kind of time because unlike with smoking, people die from smoking, but that's a longer game. Yes, yes. People are dying, and but I don't think there, we have that kind of time. Does there need to be a discussion? One of the other things is that you know the anti-smoking campaign. It was, it was bipartisan. That's that's the way I remember it. It was congressional. It was going on at the state level. It was going on culturally. It was going on a variety of different areas. I wonder whether there is the will, the political will, either from Republicans or Democrats, to say let's have another discussion like this because I think too many politicians. They're worried about that they're going to lose the youth vote if they don't come out in favor of, you know, legalization of recreational marijuana. And any conservative that comes out and does it, they're going to say, this is, you know, Nancy Reagan reincarnated, and, and the war on drugs is pretty much laughed off now as a bad idea. Look, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a recovery guy, and I can tell you that people use, people introduce substances into their body to, to excess because in one shape, manner, or form, they're trying to escape from something. So, and they're trying to alter the reality they're in so they can get out of it for just a moment to make it be something they think might be better or tolerable. So the conversation, if we're going to have one about drug use in America, is to try to find out why it is that so many people feel the desperate need to escape. Right, right. That's the problem. Right. I don't have any kind of answer for that. I know why. I felt like I needed to escape, but that doesn't do anybody else any good. Is it insurmountable? The, 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 the thought that I've just stated, is this an insurmountable challenge to this country? I don't think any of the problems we're discussing are insurmountable. What I think I fear maybe what causes us to think it's insurmountable is, frankly, the lack of a political will mm-hmm. to tackle some of the major issues we're facing. 
And is it also is it also that we are at a point in this country where it is so much more important for politicians to be a Republican or a Democrat and do things for the good of your party, for the perpetuation of your constituents, that's more important than doing something that's good for the United States of America as a nation. It seems to be about the constant ability to get reelected, and all of us have mentioned that in different ways. Instead of moving the nation forward and maybe not being reelected again, it's all about what do I need to say in order to get reelected, and that's what we right. hear continually on both sides. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I'm going to give a shout-out to my guy, Trump, um, is not as obnoxious as that might seem in the context of this discussion, but... There are times when we have seen politicians, and Trump is one of them, step outside of their political box, and Trump did it with a prison reform, which was not a big deal among the conservatives. I have to say he took a right. lot of flack right. for conservatives for doing that, but he felt, and I agree with him, and a lot of people do, I think, at this mm. table, that that was something for the good of the people. So, yes, I think that it can be done, and, and it needs to be done. There's a First Step Act video out there on YouTube from NBC from an event at the White House last Monday. Right. I urge everybody to watch it. It was the president with people who had been released from prison for nonviolent crimes who had been there a long time, one after one testimonials. It's moving. There's moments that are funny, and there's moments that actually, moments that brought tears to my eyes. One of the great, uh, important political movements of the last 50 years. I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive. But our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Dumont, uh, go ahead, say what they've said. Somebody just texted me and said, where are the fights? So I think we got 15 minutes we left. Gotta we got to do it. We got to get in the fight. Let's, let's go to Mike in Spokane. Perhaps he uh, can say something that gets uh, everybody fighting each other. Go ahead, Mike. Hi, Bruce. Thanks for taking my call. So By the like way, my, my the... condolences to the Zags for uh, bowing oh, out early in the final four. Well, the, yeah, we got to the final. <laughs> not the final the... four. They were long gone. Final eight. Yeah, final eight, final eight. But we're proud of Gonzaga, very proud. Um, you know, I'd like to talk about Venezuela, but with marijuana, as you know, Bruce, uh, Washington State legalized this three years ago, marijuana. Right. And what we're finding is that uh, AAA had done some surveys, American Automobile Association recently, mm-hmm. and the number of accidents have gone up, partly because of marijuana use. We're also finding that where they grow this marijuana on their farms, the odor... Um, goes hundreds of yards, 500 yards, 600 or more, causing homes to decrease in value. And we have churches here with marijuana shops 50 feet from churches. So it, it is a growing problem here. Okay. But I would like to talk about Venezuela, if I could. 
um, the growing crisis in Venezuela yeah. and the shortage of food in Venezuela, the lack of electricity, and now we have Russians who have 100 troops in Venezuela and the Chinese who are active in Venezuela, migration from Venezuela. Um, where is President Trump on Venezuela and the presidential candidate? Okay, let, let's. That, that, that's a good point. I'm going to start with you, Jennifer, and try to put it in the context of at least some criticism that has come of the president in recent w- days, and that is sometimes the president takes a real hard stand, yes. at, like he was going to shut down the border, and then he backs away from it. Yeah. Uh, he also has said similar things about Venezuela. So uh, it's sort of off the front burner right now, but it's still cooking out there. And uh, as Mike suggested, uh, you know, enemies of the United States, uh, are uh, they've not taken it off their front burner. No, and you know, I'm I'm not up on exactly what his last statement on Venezuela was, but I do want to speak to what you just said about Trump kind of floats these trial balloons, I, I kind of like to call them, where he makes a statement like, I'm going to close the border down, and then he retreats from it. And I heard somebody on Fox make a really um, interesting uh, analysis, and they said, you know, when Trump does that, what happens? Democrats, the Democrat candidates come out, and they make their own statements, such as when Trump said, I'm going to shut down the border, um, Kamala Harris is said, um, well, I think that we ought to give illegal benef- you know, illegals this and this and this yeah, and this. And abolish and ICE. And it brings them, <laughs> right, it brings them kind of out of the woodwork. And so this person was surmising that this is something that Trump uses as a mechanism, as a tool to bring the opposition out into the field. I don't know if that's true. If it is, I think that that's really kind of awesome, but I don't, but it is something to think Alexander? about. Alexander? I think he's purely disorganized and not calculated in his actions, and it's just like rash when he does things in that way. I That doesn't um, warrant or give merit to Democratic candidates acting in their own way. I don't want to say that because he's doing one thing, they should do another. But it is not impressive to me to have a president who just randomly says really intense uh, things that, that are meaningful and affect people. But, but initially he was getting support from uh, Republicans mm-hmm. and, and very muted, muted uh, you know, opposition from Democrats, with the exception of Bernie Sanders. Uh, he was getting pats on the back for doing some positive things insofar as Venezuela is concerned. I think he's done great things as far as – I mean, I like his policy toward Venezuela. He is up to sanctions. He is literally criticizing Maduro here, Pence. Um, they are uh, giving great uh, verbal support to Guido, uh, the opposition leader. But what um, about what about as Mike suggests? What about China? What about Russia? The fact that there's some Russian troops there. I mean, well, so so he, Russia he put in stood by troops. with that. It, well, I mean, I would draw the line at putting out our own troops in Venezuela. So th- there's a limited amount we can do, but at the bully pulpit is a very po- is a very powerful pulpit to use. Right. Uh, Venezuela is a mess of Venezuela's own making. Uh, I don't see it as being an issue that the United States ought to be terribly concerned about. I, I'm sorry, I don't. Uh, they Right now, they've gone from a dictator to a socialist to having a socialist waiting in the wings to take over from the other socialist if they can get that sorted. I'm disturbed a bit at having Rus- a handful of Russian troops in our hemisphere. Brings back you know, thoughts of Jack Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. We could fire that all up again. But the truth is, this just isn't an American problem. And the idea that we're supposed to do something to affect an outcome in Venezuela, it's beyond me. Last time I checked, 
segment or two ago, we were talking about our own problems here in the United States. Venezuela is not one of them. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks for your call, Mike. Um, the congressional Democrats want to investigate Donald Trump. They now want his tax returns. Uh, Nick Mulvaney was on the news this morning and said, absolutely, they're never going to get him. Uh, that we're still waiting for the Mueller report. Uh, the Democrats want all of it. They want all of the evidence. Uh, are they asking for too much, Michael? It's not that they're asking for too much. I will tell you my concern. Um, what's fascinating to me is I think most voters, most Democratic voters, don't really care very much about the Mueller investigation, the Mueller report, the investigations being done by these committees. What they're concerned about are real issues. What are we doing about the economy? What are we doing about jobs? What are we doing about immigration, et cetera? And, and the problem is, I'm going to give okay. I think the average rank and file Democrat does believe that. Unfortunately, the leadership just wants to stick it to Trump. I think there is a divide there. I think you're right, Michael. I do. Okay, on that note, that last word was from uh, Jennifer Nevins and also Brent uh, Hamachuk. Thank you very much for being with us. A nice thank job you. on your maiden voyage. And Elizabeth Eidenberg, thank you very much. Alexandra Eidenberg. Alexandra, so what did I say? Well, Elizabeth? You got my name wrong. I got your name wrong. What did I say? It's okay. Oh, <laughs> Alexandra Eidenberg and Michael Bauer. We thank you very much thank for you. being with us. Our thanks to Sam Greenberg and Fritz Goldman for their assistance in the production of this program. And we say farewell to our longtime engineer, uh, Sam Greenberg. He's going on to Greener Pastures. I'm Bruce Dumont. Good night from Chicago. April Jewell, a teacher in Ballard County School District in Kentucky. Last year, we received word that our school had been selected to receive a $25,000 grant from the America's Farmers Grow Rural Education Program, sponsored by the Monsanto Fund, a philanthropic arm of Bayer. The grant is designed to help further science, technology, engineering, and math education. We used it to upgrade the technology in our classrooms to enhance health science curriculums and better prepare our students for various career paths. Now through April 1st, farmers can nominate a school district to apply for $10,000 or $25,000 grants aimed at improving STEM education. I would encourage all eligible farmers to nominate today for a chance to make a lasting impact in countless classrooms. The process takes less than five minutes, and farmers can nominate their school district by visiting americasfarmers.com. That's americasfarmers.com. It's a bully. But we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, 
we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Debt. We can all get in a bit too deep. Members of the NFCC, the National Foundation for Credit Counseling, can help you put debt in its place. Credit cards took charge of my financial life. An NFCC credit counselor helped me get back in control. I took charge of my debt. Student loan debt followed me wherever I went. My NFCC financial advocate taught me all I needed to know. I mastered my student loan debt. We wanted to buy our first home, but weren't sure if we were mortgage ready. Our NFCC housing counselor helped us make a plan. We're on a path to our first home. NFCC member agencies serve all 50 states and Puerto Rico. Convenient, helpful, knowledgeable, nonprofit. Financial advocates there for you. We We put put debt in in its place. Be one of 5 million people to beat debt by 2020. Connect with an NFCC certified credit counselor at your local member agency today. Go to nfcc.org slash stop debt or call 877-410-6322.